kind of empty now. But my heart is full because I just spent a week at camp and it was a wonderful camp. I got to be a counselor. I got to be a teacher. I got to uh, speak Wednesday night. I got to be an amateur lifeguard. I got to be a volleyball referee. I, I got to wash dishes. I got to do all sorts of things. But we spent the last six days uh, kind of south of Kerrville, and we'll show it to you on a map there. Uh, I think it's 380 miles, and it was worth every mile. Uh, we we uh, did take 23 people to camp. There's actually three people that are missing from the photo there because three of the crumbs left Wednesday to go on a, on a, their trip. And so we had a good crew. There were around 160 campers there. And um, I knew camp was going to be great because I had a bunk mate, uh, a young man from Texas. And by Monday, he comes to me and he's very serious. And he says, I want to get baptized. And normally I'm like, oh, you know, let's go study about that and, and things. And I started talking to him, and it was obvious that he knew exactly what he was signing up for. His grandfather's a minister, and he's grown up in the church his whole life. And he was just convicted, and he was cut to the heart. And so I got to baptize Elijah Bach on Monday afternoon. And so when that's happening on Monday, you're thinking, this is going to be a great week. And so the topic that I got to speak about on Wednesday night, I'm going to share some of that with uh, you all here, but um, our theme was one. And so we talked about one God, and then we talked about there's one way to that God, and that one way, of course, is Jesus. And then my night was one family. And I was like, I totally want to talk about this, because I care deeply about the family of God. And so there's a story in 2 Kings chapter 6 in which Elisha is on the run from this pagan king that wants to kill him. And Elisha and his servant are hanging out in this city that's known as Dothan. And the, the king finds out that they're there. And during the night, he sends armies and horses and chariots. And they totally envelop the city. And the servant wakes up the next morning. And he goes out and he sees this show of force. And he says, oh no, my Lord, what shall we do? He's scared because he's looking through physical eyes. And then Elisha says, don't be afraid. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And if you're the servant, you've got to be thinking one, two, one, two, thirty two, three thousand and two. No, your math is bad. But Elisha wasn't looking through physical eyes. Elisha was looking through spiritual eyes. And then he takes a I can imagine him taking a hold of the servant. But then Elisha is going to pray. And he prays, open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked and he saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around the prophet. And so suddenly the servant could see through spiritual eyes and could see that he wasn't alone, that it's more than just one, two. Uh, Hebrews 12 talks about a great cloud of witness and how God's people, how the family of God, that it's never just us that are gathered here, but when we gather, that we are surrounded by a great cloud of witness. We just have to have spiritual eyes to see it. And so I'm not a prophet, but, I, but, but I'm going to humbly pray for us now for God to open our eyes for us to recognize and to realize 
that, that we are surrounded by God's family. Let's pray. Lord and God, I thank you that you're one, and we know that there is one God, and we know that you have given us Jesus as our one way to know you. And right now, Lord, I just pray that you open our eyes, and we appreciate and we value the immensity and the eternal nature and just the supernaturalness of the family of God. Amen. Okay, so I want to start in a place that's not an obvious place to start to talk about the family of God, and that's Hebrews 11. And so we don't know who actually penned the letter, but we do know that the author wrote it to Christians that, that were undergoing persecution. And to encourage these Christians, uh, the author chooses to look back to some of the heroes of faith that endured persecution, that endured trials, and these are the people that stayed faithful. And I did something I typically wouldn't do. I kind of think of myself as a, as a very strict textualist. But, I'm, but I actually kind of reworded, and um, I'm going to kind of paraphrase a big chunk of this book before I get into the text as is written in your English Bible. Uh, I just want to change the focus just a little bit. So um, I think it starts around verse 6 or 7 if you want to follow along. Uh, but this is kind of a paraphrase by me. In our family, we sacrifice worthily to God. And like Abel, our sacrifice speaks from the dead. In our family, death doesn't get the final word. Enoch walked with God, and he never died. Like Noah, in this family, we condemn the hatred and violence of the world, and we build boats that can endure any storm. In our family, like Abraham, when God says go, we go. And we're willing to live in tents while we are looking forward to the city of God. In this family, our women, even though they're barren, they give birth to children of promise. And their children are more numerous than the stars in the sky. In our family, we know that in order to save our sons and our daughters, that we must be willing to give their very lives away to God as Abraham did for his son, um, Isaac. In this family, just like Jacob, we lean upon our, our staffs and we bless the young. In our family, we disobey laws that require us to kill newborn, newborn babies and we find a way to keep Moses alive. In this family, even though Moses grew up in, in, in the palace, we go stand with the slaves. In this family, God sets the captives free, and we walk through the raging Red Sea. In our family, walls fall down, and harlots trapped inside of those very walls of Jericho become wives and mothers to godly men and kings. And then by verse 32, he just starts naming names and random acts of faith that people have actually lived out. And so let's start in verse 32. This is uh, from the voice version of the Bible. He says, I could go on and on, but I've run out of time. There are so many more. Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, the prophets. Through acts of faith, they toppled kingdoms. They made justice work. They took the promises for themselves. They were protected from lions and fires and sword thrust. They turned disadvantage to advantage. They won battles. Women received their loved ones back from the dead. There were those who 
under torture, refuse to give in and go free, preferring something better, resurrection. Others braved abuse and whips, and yes, chains and dungeons. We have the stories of those who were stoned, sought into, murdered in cold blood, stories of vagrants wandering the earth. They were homeless, friendless, powerless. And then there's this line, that's one of my favorite lines, the world did not deserve them. Other versions say the world was not worthy of them. They were making their way as best they could on the cruel edges of the world. Verse 39 reads, Not one of these people, even though their lives of faith were exemplary, got their hands on what was promised. God had a better plan for us. Wait a minute, the pronoun just changed. He's been talking about the giants of the faith, the people that that we set our children down and we tell them their stories of faith and we tell them to be faithful like Abraham and be faithful like Sarah and Rahab and the prophets and David. And we've been talking about they and then out of nowhere the text changes to the church. It changes to Christians. He says God had a better plan for us that their faith and our faith would come together to make one completed whole. Their lives of faith not complete apart from ours. Hope you get goosebumps. To sit around and think about David didn't finish the job. Abraham didn't finish the job. Sarah and Rahab and Samson and Jephthah and Gideon and Moses and all the prophets didn't finish the job. That there's something about their story that is incomplete apart from our story. Apart from the story of the church. And I hope that excites you. To know that that is our inheritance. That that is our way back spiritual family. And so it's, it's in this context. It's, it's in this idea that, there's, that there are these people that have been faithful to God that are part of the family of God, but there's something that isn't complete. And so Jesus takes on flesh, and he comes to earth, and he lives, and he loves, and he heals, and he teaches. And because of that, humans were jealous, and they didn't understand, and they crucified him. But he was resurrected. And he continued to teach and to love, and then he ascended back with his father. And when he ascends back, the family of God on earth consisted of 120 believers in Acts chapter 1, our family. And then on the day of Pentecost, they added 3,000 people to our family. Because Peter gets up and he preaches the gospel and there's 3,000 people that are baptized. And suddenly this, this group, around 120, they need to disciple this whole huge influx that comes in to the family. And they disciple them and they teach them and they're doing things. And then the world says, just like we persecuted Jesus, we're going to go persecute the family of Jesus. And so this group has to spread. And so they spread out. And as they spread, they teach the gospel and they raise the dead and they heal the sick. And this movement starts growing. And then as this movement grows, then persecution ramps up. This last year, I had an opportunity to teach a class at Veritas, a private Christian school here, and it started at kind of the close of the New Testament, and it went through about the Reformation period, and so the first several months 
of the class. We were reading the, the uh, actual original documents of the early church fathers. And when they tell the story about our family, about the church, they can't help but to write all of these first-hand accounts of persecution. And guys, it's powerful. In fact, the church had names for people that went through these types of trials. So if you were accused of being a Christian and they had a trial and they found you guilty, well, the next thing that they do is they punish you. And it's not like getting a speeding ticket, okay? The punishment was torture. And if they bring you in and if they physically torture you and you refuse to renounce the name of Jesus under threat and physical pain and mocking and everything that they could pour out upon you and you lived and they released you. The church had a name for somebody like that. You were called a confessor. And for the rest of your life, those people that were walking around, that were attending local churches, they would say, look at her. She's a confessor. And maybe they might have a limp from the torture that they went through. Maybe they had scars. Maybe they were missing an eye. Could you imagine gathering together with the church and the hand that passes you the plate that has the bread upon it is completely scarred from where they put their hand in a pot of boiling oil? Wouldn't that change the way that you thought about gathering together? Or if you were accused of being a Christian and they brought you in and they had a trial and they found you guilty and then they started punishment and if you died... They had a name for that too. It's called a martyr. And the early church would celebrate. Wives that are now widows, children that are orphans would celebrate, even though that they knew that they were going to have a hard time in life with their husband and their father God because they said he kept his faith. He didn't give in, and they celebrated. And those very places where Christian blood was spilt would become places of prayer that the early church would gather there and say, this is what it means to be in our family. This is what it means to follow Jesus. And funerals were celebrations. And the Roman world was completely weirded out by all of this. They would ask the question, what is going on? There are stories of the Roman executioners that are wielding weapons of death, killing Christians that suddenly... Their heart is pricked, and they say, I can't do this anymore. And they put their weapons of death down, and they go over to the people of life, and they name the name of Jesus, and then they die by the very weapon that they used to wield. People noticed their faith. They heard the stories. And as the teachings of Jesus spread, life got better for everybody. Slaves were given dignity because work was seen as a holy task because they read the Bible. Women and children were seen as made in the image of God and valuable and, they, and that they were not only property. Sexual sin was, was condemned. Unwanted babies, particularly girls, were saved. In the Roman world, when a child was born, they had placed a child in the middle of the home. And then, and, and then the patriarch... The man in the house had two choices. He could walk in and pick the baby up, in which case it would be cared for and would become part of the family, or he could cruelly turn his back. And by the time he went back into the room, a child or a slave would have picked the baby up, and normally girls, because they weren't seen as valuable as boys, 
and, and, the, and the little baby girl would be taken to a landfill to die of hunger or taken out into a forest to be eaten by beasts. And our family, the Christians, said this is evil. We're not going to put up with this. And so Christians started hanging out around the landfill. They started going to places in the forest where babies were dropped and they would listen. Can you imagine being in that in that landfill and just the stench and the smell but you're like I'm I'm not about the smell. I'm about hearing. And you listen. And maybe you hear a gurgle and you get closer. And maybe you hear a cry. And maybe it starts getting louder. And you get closer and closer, and you start digging. You start digging. And then suddenly, through all the debris and all the trash, you look up and you see an eyes of a beautiful baby girl. And our family picked that baby girl up and cleaned her up and gave her a name and gave her a, and gave her a place. They made her part of the family. Because that's what Christians do. The church did so much care for the poor and the sick and for lepers, that even some of the pagan temples said, uh-oh, <laughs> look at the word about these Christians are getting for doing this. We need to start doing charity work as well. Hospitals, orphanages, human rights, all have their roots in our family tree. Today's Juneteenth. The fight against slavery, the fight for civil rights, are all based on the teachings of Jesus, and much of it stemmed out of the church. That is our family. Today we stand on the shoulders of giants and we should see that through supernatural spiritual eyes that we are surrounded by a great cloud of witness. And the Bible has all sorts of analogies for this. Uh, Peter's going to describe it this way. He says that it's like a building. And Jesus is the chief cornerstone. In Peter's day, when they built a building, the most important thing was to get that cornerstone just right. It had to be level and true, and then the entire building tied back to that one stone. And Peter says that man, that the builders rejected Jesus as the cornerstone, but God said yes to him. And now all those giants of the, of the faith, all of those early church people that, that were confessors and martyrs, all of the people who fought against slavery, all of the people that established orphanages, hospitals, that those are living stones that are stacked upon that cornerstone. And then you and I are living stones. And as part of the family, as part of the church, that we also are part of this beautiful structure. Paul's got an a analogy that he likes a lot. He likes it so much he's going to use it twice. He says that the people of God, that the family of God, that they're like a body. And if, the, if this body is going to be formed together to form one whole, that we all have different parts. We all have a different function, but we all need one another. And he talks about how to be part of this body, that we shouldn't think more highly of ourselves than what we ought, but we should use sober judgment in accordance to the faith that God has given to us. He's going to say that each member belongs to all the rest. The eye doesn't belong to the eye, but it belongs to the rest of, of the body. And so the Bible encourages us to take this idea seriously, to know that we need one another. So families have a father, and we have God, 
as our father. But we also have men that are part of the family of God and men who are part of the church. And there's a picture that I have in my office that I look at virtually every day, and it's how I think of ministry. The man in the middle there is Moses. And Joshua is not Moses' biological son. But in this story, as they're wandering through the wilderness, the story's found in Exodus 17, uh, they come to a time where they have to go to war. And Joshua is being mentored by Moses to be the next leader of the people. And Joshua is sent out to go fight. And Moses watches the battle from high upon the hill. And as long as he can keep his hands raised, Joshua and the armies are victorious in their battle. But as the strength of Moses wanes and the arms fall, then the battle turns against Joshua. And so Aaron and Hur sweep in and help Moses keep his hands raised high. This is why you wake up on Sunday morning and come and gather with the family of God. Because whether you have a biological son or just a son in the faith that you've mentored and you've raised up and now you've sent out to fight battles that are not yours to fight. Men, fathers, you can stand upon that hill and you can keep your hands raised up. Now, through physical eyes, Moses' physical strength is what is weakening and his arms go down. But I think the lesson that we should learn here is that as we launch people out, as we launch sons and daughters out, as we're raised up, perhaps... Moses is growing spiritually weak, and he needs somebody around him. Husbands, men, if you really love those, those children that you've launched out, you'll have people around you to support you. I need other men in my life to help me be a good father to Kip and to Callie. I need other men in my life to help me be a good minister to our youth. So I can't think of a better picture to show on Father's Day. That we're a family. And we have a purpose. And we have a mission. And sometimes it's just to hold one another up so that we can encourage our young. Find yourself in, in this picture, men. Be a Moses that is training others up and sending them out. Be an Aaron or her that is supporting people that are training and sending out. And all of us should be in one of those seats at different times. So, this week, our family grew. We had several that were baptized at camp. I've told you about a few of them. But our local family grew, and she is feeling sick, and she's not here today. But uh, probably everyone here knows uh, Bob and Paula. And probably everybody knows uh, one of their children, Jeff and Tracy. And then Jeff and Tracy have a son. His name is Shelby. And Shelby and Stephanie have a kid, and her name is Mila. And she came to, to us about the middle of the week, and we talked to her, and we prayed about it, and we called home, and they said, yeah. And so she was baptized, and I just want to give you guys a chance to watch that now. One more click.
biologically, she's got a mother, she's got a father. But in our family, look at how many mothers and fathers that she has. Because that's what the church does. Mila needs our support as our, as our sister and daughter in the faith. Shelby and, and Stephanie need our support as, as Aaron and hers that can go and surround her. Right now, I want to finish with a story, and I just want to encourage you to find your place in the body. There was a village in France in World War II that they had a statue of Jesus. And as Germany was bombing the village, the statue was badly damaged. And they went out and they found most of the pieces and they rebuilt the statue. And there was one thing that they just couldn't find the pieces to, that they just couldn't get to look right. And that was the hands of Jesus. And so they debated and they struggled and they prayed. And finally somebody hung a plaque upon the statue that said, I have no hands but yours. And that line is from a poem, and I'm going to read that now. Jesus has no body now on earth but yours. No hands but yours. No feet but yours. It is your eyes through which Christ's compassion looks out to the world. Your feet with which He must walk about doing good. Your hands with which He blessed mankind. Your voice with which His forgiveness is spoken and your heart with which He now loves. Jesus doesn't have a physical body on earth. He has a family. He has a church. And that's us. If you need to make a decision to become part of that family, you saw what it looks like. You name Him as Lord and you follow Him into the waters and you're baptized into a watery grave, and you're raised again to have a new life, but you get a new family in the deal. If you need to recommit to finding your place in, in, in the body, and to functioning in the body, and belonging to one another, and you just want to state that publicly, you can come as we stand and sing.